0: Hello, and welcome back. I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation with Dr. Sarah Gorman about misinformation and science denial. Dr. Gorman is a public health expert and author. She has a master's in public health from Columbia University and a PhD in English literature from Harvard. Her first book is called Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us. I think this is a beautiful title and it really captures the essence of our conversation today. We talk about understanding misinformation, where it comes from and why some people seem to be more vulnerable than others or why certain times of your life you might be more vulnerable. We also talk about protecting yourself from misinformation and the first step there is to recognize that nobody is immune to it. We also discuss how to engage with others who have absorbed beliefs that are not rooted in evidence and how to have a constructive conversation and the answer here turns out to be not always As intuitive as you might expect, it's not just about facts. It's a very emotional and psychological equation as well. If you want to learn more about Dr. Gorman's work, be sure to check out her books as well as the organization that she co founded called Critica Science. Critica is a nonprofit that is committed to helping people make rational, evidence based decisions about health and security. Dr. Gorman is also a contributor at Those Nerdy Girls, which is another community committed to informed health decision making. She and I are definitely two peas in a pod and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I also want to thank you for being someone that's part of the anti-misinformation army. You are taking the time right now to learn how to be a more evidence-based thinker, how to be more skeptical, and how to engage productively with people who are not following the evidence. So thank you for being part of this team effort, because we really do need everyone to pitch into this massive problem. That's all for now. I will see you. After the holidays, likely it is the end of 2022 right now, and I will be taking a little break and see you back in January. Take care. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarah Gorman. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to hear a bit about yourself and your personal story. So can you share how you came to be so passionate about fighting misinformation and science denial? I actually got interested in this topic about 10 years ago. So
1: before it was a huge topic on the political and social scene and in the medical and health worlds, I was at the time very interested in the issue of vaccine hesitancy and why some parents were not vaccinating their children against measles and other childhood diseases. At the time, I thought there wasn't a lot of good literature around the psychological aspects of why this might happen. Most of it focused on if there were things that parents didn't know or some kind of knowledge deficit, and that felt insufficient. So I started to look around and I realized that there was really a book to be written about this topic, the kind of issues about the psychology of science denial. So I wrote my book, Denying to the Grave, which came out in 2016, and there was a new version that came out in 2021 as well with more information about the pandemic. And I'm working on a new book now that's focused on medical mistrust and conspiracy theories, so very much along the same lines, but trying to focus a little bit more on some of the broader structural factors that make people not trust the healthcare system and eventually believe in conspiracy theories.
0: I'm really looking forward to digging into this because It's not something I had really thought about until the pandemic either. And I think the simplest assumption is that it's all about lack of information, right? Or a knowledge deficit, as you phrased it. But it's really much more about trust and psychology and more than that. Yeah, we
1: often find that people who believe in misinformation or believe conspiracy theories have access to and have even in some ways absorbed the correct information. So there's some other block there that has to do more with psychology, social psychology risk assessment, things that have to do with how your mind processes things versus what you do or don't know.
0: So before we dive more deeply into the underlying causes and then moving into solutions, I want to just spend a bit of time on the problem statement. So why is this such an important issue to be thinking about as individuals and as a society?
1: We find that misinformation has real consequences. So people make decisions and take action based on what they believe. We know that from the literature that vaccine hesitancy or misinformation about COVID-19, for example, vaccines, makes people not as likely to actually seek out the vaccine. So there's a real through line from believing misinformation to actual behaviors and decisions. That's one reason. I think another reason is because sometimes misinformation and its spread is a symptom of a larger problem. So in the U.S., I think we're really dealing with huge issues around our social safety net structural issues around access to health care. And sometimes misinformation spreads when people start to lose trust in certain systems because, in part, they have trouble accessing what they need. And so I think that we have to pay attention to where misinformation is cropping up because sometimes it can tell us something about another problem that may potentially be even bigger.
0: And getting into behaviors, I guess some of those behaviors are going to be relatively harmless, you know, maybe just spending money on something that doesn't really work, whereas others are actually, as you say in your book, denying to the grave, literally lethal consequences.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think in certain areas, for example, in health, where there isn't a lot of treatment for something like, for example, long COVID, people seek out other types of treatments. And some of those things may not be harmful and may not distract from getting other types of treatment because there is really no treatment for long COVID. But sometimes either those things are harmful or that kind of belief in alternative remedies comes along with a belief that the real treatment is not effective or is harmful in some way. And that's what we see a lot, for example, in cancer treatment, where people believe in alternative cures to the exclusion of getting chemotherapy or other evidence-based treatments.
0: Let's start talking about causes. So we alluded to earlier that it's not just about access to information. So I guess there are two aspects to it, right? Where does misinformation come from and why are some people more susceptible than others?
1: Misinformation sometimes comes directly from what's often referred to as disinformation, which is the distinction there is that disinformation is incorrect information that is spread intentionally in order to have some kind of negative effect. Whereas misinformation is considered to be something that may be more unintentionally spread where the person might not know that it's not true. In reality, in real time, it can be very difficult to actually distinguish between misinformation and disinformation because we don't always know people's intent. But there are people out there who purposely spread incorrect information. And oftentimes for those people, there's a profit motive. So a classic example would be people who spread the idea that certain treatments that are medically sound are actually not safe for certain conditions, and they spread the idea that somebody needs to buy their treatment instead. So then they have a profit motive. There can also be people who just sort of have an ego-driven narcissistic motive who may feel in certain cases that they've been slighted by the establishment. So there are certain charismatic leaders like Andrew Wakefield, who is the doctor who originally spread the idea that the MMR vaccine causes autism. He felt that he was sort of slighted by the medical establishment because he lost his license and no one believed his study and ultimately it was proved to be fraudulent. But his motivation is now he's really sort of on the war path to convert as many people to his side as possible so that they're not taken in by this medical establishment that he's resentful of. I would say on the misinformation side in terms of who actually falls for misinformation, I would say first off that we're all susceptible Most of us have probably fallen for misinformation at different times to a certain degree. But the way that it really persists and sticks for people is due to a number of factors. So I would say high levels of uncertainty, which we saw definitely during the COVID-19 pandemic, being a real driver of people being more prone to believing in explanations that were not really true. In addition, I would say also people who lack self-efficacy about finding The right information. So people who, for whatever reason, feel that they don't know enough or they are not capable of interpreting scientific information for themselves. And that is a lot of people because I would argue we don't give people enough skills on how to do that well. So there's a feeling of helplessness and an ability to be taken in by an easy explanation. And then obviously just confusion, when there's confusion in the actual science or there's debates going on, that is a good time for misinformation to take hold because there's too many different directions and not a clear answer. So all those things were probably very present during COVID. I would also note that it's not entirely clear actually in the literature at this point, who is most susceptible to misinformation. So there are studies that suggest, for example, that a lack of education makes people more prone to misinformation, and other studies that suggest the opposite. So that's not a clear line, even though people think it is. Media literacy or just general literacy is also not a good predictor of who believes in misinformation. But I would say there are a few things that really coincide with believing misinformation. So one is older age. Age over 65 seems to be a factor, at least in being more likely to spread misinformation. Political polarization, so having very extreme political views, can make someone more prone to believe and spread misinformation. And also high levels of anxiety go along with high levels of confirmation bias, which is the tendency to seek out information that agrees with what you already believe. And in those cases, people really get stuck on a certain belief and have trouble dislodging it because usually the anxiety is in the way. So those are some of the key factors.
0: I read an article recently that got me thinking about maybe it's not so much the person, but it's their stage of life and that we have vulnerable periods because it was a story about a woman who was a nurse and then she had this kind of difficult baby who was unhappy a lot and then they were particularly unhappy after a series of vaccines. And then she started researching about vaccines and next thing you know, she was anti-vax because of that particular period and what was going on in her life.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's true to look at not just the type of person, but the life course situation. That's why I said uncertainty, confusion are susceptibility factors. And anxiety is a big one that we don't talk about often. So somebody who is very anxious about vaccines going into it is going to be more likely to believe something they see that suggests that vaccines are unhealthy and be less able to attend to other information that says something that's kind of isn't concordant with their anxiety. So I would say definitely it's useful to think about situations instead of the psychological situation that you're in versus your psychology as a person.
0: And in my own experience, I would say maybe a sense of desperation that, you know, I certainly I feel more open to considering non-mainstream sort of approved options when I feel like when there's not really a good alternative, then I start to say, well, maybe this thing is worth a try and maybe that is good enough.
1: Yes. Desperation is definitely a factor here because we see that in, there are certain areas in medicine where we think of so-called contested illnesses, things like chronic Lyme. And there's some concern that long COVID is going to become a contested illness where the medical establishment doesn't quite recognize this as an illness. And partially as a result of that, there is some anger probably, but also there aren't good treatments for this thing that is not well understood. And most people aren't really looking into it anyway. And so I think there does become a desperation when someone feels so unwell and they're offered absolutely no options. Not even you have this diagnosis, but there's no treatment. They're not even recognized for their diagnosis. It actually comes to make some sense that people would start looking around at other explanations, other treatments in that state of, like you said, desperation.
0: You gave a great TED talk. I think it was entitled, When's the Last Time You Changed Your Mind? Something along those lines. And I think that was just really important for all of us to think about. So can you give some advice on recognizing in yourself when you're holding beliefs that maybe are not accurate or not founded in evidence?
1: Yes, I think the first step is just what we talked about already, recognizing that everyone is vulnerable or susceptible, that there is no type of person that doesn't have the capacity to fall for misinformation. And certainly all of us are very prone to confirmation bias. That is universal. And that's a big factor in believing misinformation. So I think just recognizing that first of all and having some humility. One of the things you can do when you're reading articles, thinking about what to share is actually priming yourself. So this works in experiments. What happens is that the experimental will ask the person, before you share this, please consider whether you think this is accurate. And just having that reminder actually lowers the rate at which people share misinformation. That's a very robust finding. So you can practice that on yourself by pausing before you share something. Before I believe this, how accurate do I think this is? Because a lot of it is not, you don't have the capacity to figure out if it's accurate, but that you're going on sort of autopilot and you're not engaging with the part of your mind that is more skeptical and has the capacity to question what you're seeing.
0: So that's a really good strategy to use. Yeah, sometimes I try to ask myself, do I just want this to be true? Yeah. How would I feel about this evidence if it was supporting the strength of this evidence, if it was supporting a perspective that I didn't want to be true?
1: Right. Those are a great set of questions to ask. You can also ask yourself, how did I form this belief? can be hard if it's a belief you formed in your childhood. That's very hard. But if it's something that is more recent, you can try to trace your steps. Okay, I read this. I read that. I talked to this person. Does it seem balanced? Are there places where you could have been missing one side of the story? Slowing yourself down is what these things do, the priming and that retracing your steps really slows you down so that you can reconsider what you think is really happening here.
0: Speaking of slowing down, I guess I'm just thinking about real life. Like, I mean, how realistic is it to do such a critical evaluation of every piece of information that you take in and that you pass on? So I'm just wondering your thoughts on how this plays out in the real world, you know, for you and the advice that you give to others.
1: Yeah, so I would say, think about the consequences of sharing, who you're going to be sharing it with, what the information is. If it's something that's high stakes, like it's advice about COVID-19 isolation or something that somebody might actually respond to with a behavior that affects other people, then you might want to do one of these exercises where you stop yourself. And it doesn't have to take a long time, but you stop yourself and say, do I think this is accurate? Why do I think this is accurate? is there anything that could make me think this is inaccurate? And is there anything else I should look at before I share this? I think that's a useful exercise, especially if you're not sure for some reason. If it's a reputable source, you know, if it's coming from the CDC or the health department, in those cases that step may not be as necessary. But if it's coming from pretty much anywhere else, even major news sources can get things wrong or can spin things in a way that's misleading. So you have to always be sort of on your guard to think, what are the consequences of sharing this? And if the consequences are real for people's decisions about their health or well-being, then you might want to prime yourself if it's sort of anything else that's just fun or interesting, it doesn't have an actual consequence in the real world, then you may not need to go through that process.
0: One thing that I've wondered about is take, for example, the area of menopausal hormone therapy, which is something that I've been researching. There are many people who are following practices that don't align with the consensus statement of the relevant expert. So North American Menopause Society, Endocrinological Society of America, a bunch of societies all agree in this particular case that bioidentical hormone therapy, particularly the compounded version, should be kind of a last resort, not a first line because it's customized, it's not FDA approved, it's not regulated for quality, the doses haven't been tested in trials. There's a bunch of reasons why that's not a good way to go. Yet a major fraction of women are using that. So I'm wondering in a case like that, Do these people just not realize that they're following advice counter to the experts or do they just think that in general, one should not follow the advice of experts because experts are often wrong?
1: So in those cases, it could be. So some portion of those people will not know what the recommendation is. That's definitely the case. Some portion will think, I don't believe experts ever. And then most people will be somewhere in the middle where they kind of know that this is not the recommendation, but I'm an individual and this is making me feel better, et cetera. This is where it gets a little tricky with health because there are population level data that produce the recommendations we have, but then there's clinical experience and individual cases. And those two things are not the same. So there can be a lot of confusion when, oh, my doctor told me to do something that I'm not supposed to do by the guidelines. It may be the case that in your case, for whatever reason, with that doctor's experience, that made sense. In those cases where it's not so open and shut, where there's more gray area, there can be that situation where people realize they may know that this is not the recommendation, but they understand this distinction of their own individual experience.
0: It is often hard to wrap your head around the population level recommendations versus what's right for you and how to kind of reconcile that whilst allowing for individuality.
1: Yeah, that can be very confusing. And some of it is a personal choice too. The one that comes to mind now for me, because I just had COVID, are the masking recommendations around day five, day 10, testing, not testing. Some of it is after day 10, CDC says you can take your mask off, even if you have a positive test, but maybe you shouldn't. (laughs) So it kind of depends on the person to say, Am I around vulnerable people? Am I nervous about spreading it? Do I want to just take the most possible risk averse method forward? How annoying is wearing this mask? You know, things like that, where it's not clear. No one knows for sure what the best advice is, but some of it is just deciding how much risk do I want to take in
0: this situation? I did post recently on breast cancer screening mammograms and especially in your 40s, that's one where population level, individual level can be very different because there's this whole layer of risk tolerance and how do you feel about a false positive and how do you feel about a false negative or all these possible outcomes and In the 40s, it's a very fuzzy time and the guidelines basically say for a woman to consider her own kind of balance of positives and negatives.
1: Right. Sometimes you have to make the decision yourself, which is hard because you don't actually feel like you have all the information and you haven't read all the studies, but sometimes there isn't a clear answer for you as a person.
0: Yeah, I think there's a real need in cases like that to have a tool that helps you understand what actually are the positives and negatives and how likely are those different events. And I can put a link to my post if anyone's curious, because there are some actual risk calculators and some organizations that do try to put this out there for you. So you can walk through the tool and understand for yourself how to make an informed choice with the actual best available data, which is the goal.
1: Yeah, and I think those types of tools are good because they give people what I was talking about before, this kind of self-efficacy. I think people feel disempowered about making health decisions because there's so much information and they're led to believe that they're not going to know what the answer is, which is true in some cases, but there are cases where doing some research yourself, trying to figure out some answers is appropriate. And I think people feel like they don't know how to do that. And so the more we can empower people to be able to you know, make that data more accessible to them and help them make decisions, I think the better.
0: So I think a lot of the listeners of this show are really dedicated to not only making evidence-based choices themselves, but being messengers of that. So what advice do you have for engaging with someone that is clearly holding a position that is potentially harmful to them, like the person who doesn't want to get their COVID vaccine, for example?
1: This is kind of the bread and butter of some of the work that I do Day to day, that I research sort of how to have these kinds of conversations and interventions. Engaging with others who may be holding a non evidence based belief, the first thing I say is to listen to what they said, let them finish, because that's surprisingly hard, and make sure you really heard what they said. And then ask questions before you start giving your opinion to make sure that you really understand and also to help them walk through how they decided what they think and where those ideas are coming from. You may not be able to do this in one sitting, so you may have to engage someone in several conversations, and that's okay. Don't feel pressure that you have to change everyone's mind all in one conversation. That's a very daunting task. It may not be possible. Try to establish common ground and what the person's values are. What are they trying to accomplish by having this opinion or making this decision? Try to tell stories about yourself. Make yourself human to the other person people respond more to stories than statistics or facts alone, which we know. So that's very useful in terms of connecting with the other person. And also just know that if someone is very extreme, they've been an anti-vaxxer since age 12 and they'll never change their minds, that it's okay to not engage in that kind of conversation. Most people are on the fence and in the middle and they may have been led to believe something by somebody who is spreading disinformation. So having some empathy for that, but also realizing when it's probably not going to work to engage the person and being able to walk away in those situations too.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of people wore themselves out trying to have these conversations and felt like they were banging their heads against a wall. So it's important to protect yourself too, right? Absolutely. It's key. Personally, in your life, do you walk around trying to change people's minds in your daily conversations? How do you navigate that and when to expend the energy and when not to?
1: I was thinking recently, it's interesting because with Thanksgiving coming up, people always ask me, what should I do? I have a family member who won't get the vaccine, etc. And I realized that there's nobody in my, even in my extended family, who doesn't believe in any kind of medical intervention. So I don't actually have anyone in my immediate family or my extended family who I would come across at Thanksgiving who would say, I'm not getting the COVID vaccine. So I've had maybe a little bit less practice in my personal life than some people, but I have a lot of practice in my professional life. I try to follow those steps that I just said. It's not always easy to do because sometimes it can feel superficial or artificial when you're talking to someone you know to go into this mode of, okay, like asking them the questions and listening and telling them the stories. But I try to do it as much as possible. And sometimes it works. Sometimes people just get distracted and we don't get to see it all the way through. But I try to do it as much as I can in real life to practice what I preach.
0: I try as well, but maybe less these days than I did pre-COVID because I got worn out to some extent. One thing that I find helpful with people on the fence sometimes is to just leave them with a website. You know, we didn't get to talk about this, but here's one of the resources that I found useful on this topic. You know, not everyone's going to be open to looking at that, but
1: sometimes. I certainly advocate for that. And I try to say, get a sense of the conversation of what types of resources, like what tone, what type of source, whether it's a news source or a government source that the person you're talking to trusts right? and then try to provide them with that type of source. So if they really distrust the government, don't give them the CDC website. They're not going to respond well to that. So just get a sense of where in general do they like to get their information that is a reasonable source
0: and see if you can actually find something from those sources. For example, with vaccines and children, maybe someone's more responsive to an organization of pediatricians than the CDC. Right. You have to consider the source, as they say. So is there anything that you want to mention more at a societal level? Like this is obviously a huge problem and your thoughts on where this is going and what needs to happen to head off, you know, even worse outcomes.
1: I've been thinking about this a lot because as I said at the beginning, my new book that I'm working on now is focus on some of the more structural societal level factors that contribute to people believing in misinformation and not trusting our institutions. And I would say there are a couple of things we can do as a society. I would say one thing on sort of the government level is that there needs to be different and better regulation of social media. So we're all seeing how Twitter is pulling out of moderating misinformation and everybody's worried about what that's going to look like moving forward. In Europe, there are good regulations around what social media can and can't do and how they have to moderate this kind of content but we don't have anything like that here. So that's one thing, maybe hard to actually happen with our political climate, but that's an area where there is some bipartisan support. And I think interest in that needs to be reinvigorated. I would say also we need to reinvigorate local media. So there's some sort of programs that work to get local media more funding and try to prevent more local media sources from folding. But in general, We've lost a lot of those sources and people find themselves in actual information deserts. And sometimes when people are in an information desert, that's when they're more vulnerable to being pulled in by something that's totally false because they don't have their usual source that's more reliable. So that's a big problem. I would also say as a public health community, we need to have a better method of preempting what the next infodemic is going to be and how we're going to inoculate people beforehand to the misinformation. Like I think, for example, okay, so there's probably going to be an RSV vaccine at some point. What stories are people going to tell about that vaccine? Can we anticipate that now? And are there things that can be embedded within health departments where they can communicate preemptively? You might see this. Here's why, et cetera, because that is an evidence-based intervention is that sort of exposing people to the misinformation before they actually see it. Makes them less prone to it.
0: Is that the term pre bunking that I've heard?
1: Yeah, pre bunking or inoculation or preemptive displacement. It goes by many names, but it's hard to do when your health system is not preparing for the next wave. We can't know everything that's going to become an infodemic, but we can have some sense of what's upcoming in the health world and what people might start to say about it. It's not totally unpredictable, but we also need the infrastructure like. Health departments need to have people whose job it is to actually surveil what people are starting to say about new health issues and respond to that.
0: It's a daunting task. I like to think that science education, science literacy will help, even though it's clearly not 100% making you bulletproof. Just watching my son do a research project online and he's getting different information from different websites, it's just such a critical tool to be able to understand the credibility of a source.
1: Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that because that is important. And I think there are some changes that have been made to the science curriculum in the U.S. lately that have been positive. And there's also a new news media literacy requirement that some states are putting. I know Illinois and New Jersey so far, and maybe another few states have done that. So there is some interest in teaching people how to read information and understand what might not be true. But I think what's needed is, like I said before, uncertainty, confusion, and anxiety. Those are kind of the situations that create susceptibility for misinformation. And I think teaching people at a younger age how to tolerate uncertainty would make a big difference in their ability to just say, you know what? I don't know, so I'm not gonna engage with this until I actually know, versus saying I have to know an answer right now, I'm uncomfortable. And I think some of that comes with Teaching people a little bit more realistically about how science works and how much uncertainty there really is in science. But also, just if there are other ways to infuse in the curriculum, responding to things that are uncertain or sitting with things that are uncertain, or what should you do if you're uncertain, you know, maybe in a social emotional curriculum or something along those lines. I think that would make a big difference because we're generally unprepared at the moment to deal with vast
0: uncertainty, especially where we expect things to be certain, like in science. I've experienced that firsthand with doing some of the Q&As for those nerdy girls, and people really want these black and white simple answers, but often the answer is the science is unclear. For example, the question is, am I contagious on day 10 if my rapid test is still positive? Well, I can't actually give you a black and white answer. I can give you a probabilities and what we think, and this is the experiment that needs to happen but hasn't happened yet. The true answer is often very unsatisfying.
1: I just read that post because I'm positive on day ten here. I looked at the CDC website and it said, after day 10, you may remove your mask or you may remove your mask after you've had two negative tests, 48 hours. So I said, what's or? Right. What do they mean, or? <laughs> Which one is it? You know, And that's the problem with the way that our public health institutions communicate because they're not being attuned to the fact that people actually need to make a decision based on the information and don't understand that the scientific thinking is what you just said. We don't have all the information. It's probably okay. You're less likely to spread it after day ten, but you know, it's probably not zero chances that you're gonna spread it. So if you're in a situation and you wanna be more conservative, here's what you should do. They don't explain that. So I read your post, I thought it was very helpful, but I did think to myself, there isn't an answer. There isn't actually a clear answer here because nobody knows. So that's the problem.
0: Yeah, I'd love to see science communication be more nuanced in general, but I also know that a lot of people Maybe you just want the simple answer. Well, I don't know how we strike that balance.
1: I think, like I said before, it's actually a greater awareness of the actual uncertainty. There's so much uncertainty in science. Even when there's a consensus, there's still uncertainty. Making people realize that, making people actually more curious about how science works, which is actually people are more accepting of science when they have higher science curiosity, even if they have low literacy. That's one of the interesting findings in this literature. And so making them more interested and curious about the fact that, okay, we don't know anything, but how do we decide what we do know? And where is the doubt still? And what do we do with that? And at what point can we make a real recommendation? I think just ingraining that in people at a younger age for the next generation, I think we would see something very different in response to a COVID pandemic after really helping people see that when they're young.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that you have at least a little bit of optimism that there's a path forward, although it's not an easy one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to do, but organizations like Critico, where I work, are trying to do this work, and we're getting a lot of interest from health departments around the country. So that's heartening to me. Like People are seeing that there needs to be a more concerted effort to deal with misinformation, science denial, and helping people make better health
0: decisions. Are there any last messages you wanted to put out there or resources to share? We covered a lot of it. I did want to say, just emphasize again,
1: that what we're trying to do is not just reduce misinformation, but create a healthier information environment. What we want to do is make sure that not only are we removing the sources that are incorrect, but that everyone has access to high quality information that helps them actually make real decisions that helps them feel like they have the capability to understand how to make those decisions. And there are places, there are parts of the country, there are certain populations, especially sort of underserved populations that don't have good access to information. And that really becomes a social determinant of health in those cases. So I just want to encourage everyone to think about your information environment as a part of your social environment that can really affect your everyday well-being and to understand that that is a real direct component of how healthy people are.
0: I love that. That's a great way to think about it. Thank you. And for more from you, just put a shout out to your book. What's your website? Criticascience.org. Criticascience.org. Okay. So we got your book, your website, and you're also part of those nerdy girls under your pandemic. So we can Mm -hmm. look for posts from you there thank you very much for joining me and sharing your work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.